I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Welcome to Face to Face. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So, uh, Kurt, thanks for joining me for this conversation. I think you're an hour behind my uh, uh, time. I'm 9.30, you're 8.30. Can you tell us uh, where, where you're at right now? And um, can you also maybe give me a little bit of background and context about who you are and who Questcope is? Uh, well, today I'm in Atchison, Kansas, um, spending a week with my grandsons and one granddaughter, um, who are all the children of one daughter and visiting with my other daughter, who maybe get engaged very shortly, so I had a chance to meet very my nice. potential son-in-law. Um, what am I? I'm a guy who's spent the past 32 years of his life living in the Middle East, in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Upper Egypt, and basically focusing the outcome of my life on how do I help young people who have been abused, neglected, taken the wrong path, dropped out of school, how do uh, they can figure out how to redirect their lives and then enabling them to do that. So so, um, so, I want to get into that a little bit more in a second, but so can you tell me a little bit more about you? I know, um, you know, on the site we're going to have a little bit of a bio on who you are and so on, but I know, for instance, you're, you know, you were recognized by the Schwab Foundation as an entrepreneur of the year recently. You sat on numerous committees. I've, I've read through your CV. It's astounding, actually, 9, 10, 12, 11 pages long. Tell me, a, in, in a kind of a cracked nutshell, um, who, uh, who you are, Kurt. 
Well, coming from my background, because uh, I'm a medical scientist, so to speak, my specialties relate to diseases that are transmitted between people and animals, particularly parasites. Um, but the one thing that I emphasized in my graduate studies was epidemiology. It's about why people, some people get sick and some don't. Okay. And an epidemiologist is always interested in who's not here. So if you have a certain number of children born five years ago, and today you have that number minus, you know, you have a smaller number, I want to know who were those people? What happened? Was it us? Did we miscount? Did they die? So because of this professional orientation to always wanting to know who's not at the table, who's been left out, when I... Um, had my an, an appointment at the American University of Beirut in the early 80s and saw firsthand the results of the 1982 invasion and the ease by which so many Palestinian women and children and elderly people were killed, then I thought, I think I would like to focus my the efforts of my life on those people who are voiceless and invisible. So basically, that's the thread that runs through my life. The, you know, you have to play the game at both ends. You have to listen really well at the community and individual level, but you also have to be um, articulate enough that people at the top who can change things if they understood will take you seriously. So I've been consultant expert for UNICEF on commercial sexual exploitation. I've been a member of the UNIFEM Advisory Committee in Jordan. I accompanied the Jordanian delegation to the World Bank for three years running as a specialist to discuss uh, disadvantaged children. Um, I've been, one of my most interesting appointments was to the five-year strategic planning high committee of the Ministry of Education to help them change the direction that they were going with dropouts and children at risk of dropouts. And then in 2011, the, the Schwab Foundation of the World Economic Forum uh, spotted me and thought, well, this guy probably could be social entrepreneur of the year for Middle East and North Africa. So that's, mm. wow. um, well, that's amazing. the thing that I've done most recently. Yeah. I think it's interesting. So 32 years, a ton of experience. Uh, it sounds like it's uh, mostly kind of under um, ed- you know, education, uh, mentoring youth, and so on, but it sounds very connected to a whole lot of other development issues, which we can hopefully chat about in a second. But I think the one thing that I haven't noticed before when we've chatted and you know, looking at your background is the epidemiology uh, side of things. The, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell and the tipping point, I mean, that's what the whole book is about. But it's about social right. ep- social epidemics, and, right. and and finding those connecting points, and you know, and he obviously gets into it a little more uh, than than we might hear today. But yeah, it's never hit me before as I've thought about what the, the you know the work that you're doing and being somebody who's involved in social change and social justice issue. I mean, it's it's for me, it's all about the uh, the positive social epidemics, and uh, it sounds like you are too. So so tell me. Um, why the Middle East? Why did 32 years ago, did you, did you choose to go there? And, and, you know, I'm sure there was all kinds of social issues at home that you could have stayed and focused on. Why did you choose to go there instead of here? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. There's certain defining moments when you turn a corner or you uh, meet, a, meet the girl and you're ending up marrying her years later. So one of my defining moments was in 72 through 75. In 72, I was 23 and just out of university, and I spent three years as a volunteer in Indonesia, on the island of Java. Okay. You have to remember, in 72, for somebody to be 23 years old, that rhymes with Vietnam War protester, people who were full of juice, you know, I had long hair, those were... The hippie days. Well, and just what was going um, on? What was going on in the world at the time? I mean, we've got we've got Vietnam, Cambodia, yeah. Laos. What uh, I mean, it's just it's 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 incredible, actually. Yeah. Right, and we had just and we hadn't fully gotten out of some major racial strife in the United States. You know, that happened in the sixties. Sure. So that's when I went off to Indonesia to be a volunteer, <laughs> and my time there. Basically, I got three takeaways 
that have become, hmm. that I realized would be formative of the time I would live in and became formative of my life. And the first one, now remember, this is, I'm 23 years old in 1972, and I thought, the three things that are going to define my the era that I live in are youth demographics. Young people are going to outnumber everybody else. Hmm. Poverty, which will primarily be characterized by being excluded. Okay. And uh, income poverty. So you might have a job, but it's not enough to live on. Right. And the third was Islam. Because I'm living among... Muslims, and I lived at a very low economic level, even though you're always a guest, you know, you're never going to become an Indonesian. Right. I saw that Muslims and the, the Christians that are not Western, you know, that grew up around Muslims, do not easily accept the degradation of other people. Hmm. And I saw you mix youth, poverty, and Islam together in those kinds of understandings, and that's going to be my century. Right. Pretty good for a twenty-three-year-old, right? I, I'd say very good. Yeah. How come you? How come you didn't end up in Bali surfing? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, I did surf in Bali, but it just didn't have the same impact, right? <laughs> and there are a lot of sharks. I didn't. I, yeah. You know, after you push your luck so far, you don't want to do that anymore. Yes. Wow. And you were there for two years. Uh, almost three. Right. So so if Gladwell was on this conversation, that might take some doing on my part. But if he was here, I mean, he would argue that was one uh, uh, event of many that, like you uh, just mentioned earlier, that sort of came together. As you look back, you, you can make sense of those connections. But at the time, did you, it sounds like at the time you sort of knew that this was going to be your future, that you were heading this way. Well, you get you get the stuff in your head, and then you come back to the states, and in the next year or two, it begins to sort itself out in your head. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As so that, was, that's yeah. what experiences that we don't have a paradigm for they kind of sort themselves out eventually. So you were fascinated, obviously, with uh, the other side of the world, with other cultures. Uh, there were other things going on. Um, why did you end up um, choosing to go to Jordan in the Middle East and, and focusing on issues there? So you, you, you mentioned um, sort of that um, Islamic connection, but, but there's got to be a few others. Well, yeah, after uh, going to, the, to Beirut, because I went to Beirut with my young family in 1981, and seeing the results of the invasion in 1982 mm -hmm. and the deaths of so many innocent people, and there's always innocent deaths in war. Yep. Um, then for a number of years, I... Um, the family and I moved to Damascus, Syria, and I had already done quite a bit of consulting work in Aleppo, and so I, in Damascus, I taught under a cultural agreement, uh, preventive medicine to medical students who needed that particular teaching to pass their exams if they wanted to practice in the U.S. From there... It was, now remember, we have various wars going on uh, at the same time. Sure. So in, in 89-90, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Jordan, and Questcope was still a fledgling organization at that time. We, were, we finally got ourselves legally organized, you know, and founded in 88. So I had two jobs. I directed the Near East Foundation, and I directed Questcope. Okay. And that, that's what took me to Jordan. My willingness to go to Jordan was based on a couple of things. That it was a country ruled, that respected the rule of law, the laws in Jordan for regulation of charities and nonprofits matched UK law, and Questcope was originally founded as a UK institution. Um, and then the third one was, as an, a foreign individual in Jordan, I had a, I had a, a status. Okay. If I if I needed to talk to a minister or a government official, the practice in Jordan was to recognize that I had that status and could talk. So that was very important. Very different than the situation in other Arab countries at that time, where as a foreign non-national, you really had no ability right. to talk to official people. Hey, um, before I forget and we, and we move on to some other things, uh, where can people, and I'm sure we'll get back to this at the end, but Questcope, um, you've talked a little bit around that. You, f you founded Questcope? Yeah, I'm the founder of Questcope. Right. And a uh, website that people could go to uh, if they are indeed listening to the podcast? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a www, and Questscope is spelled Q-U-E-S-T-S-C-O-P-E dot org. Quest, as in the Holy Grail? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Good. So Good. How far will you go for this thing? That's right. That's right. So you mentioned just uh, a bit earlier, you mentioned the word when you, I think you said three takeaways, and uh, uh-huh. you, you, you brought up the word exclusion. Is that, I'd, I'd love to hear how you define poverty. Um, it sounds like the word exclusion will probably work into that. Oh, well, yeah. The, I did some, some simple bullet points. Each one of these things we could probably talk about for a day. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I like your style. I totally agree. Right. As if, as if, three <laughs> minutes on poverty is going to make anyone, you know, brighter and wiser. Yeah, no, I understand. Right. Yeah. So the first bullet is no job. If you don't, if you can't trade your uh, efforts for some money or for something that you need in the game, mm-hmm. then you can't play in the game. Right. This has big implications because. Think of the loss of human capital to a society when people can't work. And then, of course, there's the individual's loss of earning ability. Sure. Second one is no choices. Right. Where you actually, there's no, you, you might have a resource or an asset, but you can't, you can't do anything with it. Right. There's no, there's no game to play in. One of the things that's happened in our world in the not-so-recent past is Opportunity is capital intensive now instead of labor intensive. Oh, okay. So we have yeah. fewer and few people doing more, you know more and more stuff, and so there's a lot of quote extraneous unquote people. You know, the, at least in the way we organize our work now. So, so are you the saying? One, yeah, no, go ahead. Yep. Okay. The third one is poverty means that you don't you have no ability to have a community. You have no ability no, to have long, right? Yeah, you, there's no stakeholdership. Um, another way to look at that is there's insignificant linkages between the guys at the top and the guys at the bottom. It's very easy for people at the top to exclude and contain those at the bottom, and you, you, you people just can't live without community, without belonging. Right. A fourth one is, you know, if you if there is a choice, am I prepared? to take it. Do I have the education, Hmm. the general experience, and the specific experience? And something that we often leave out in poverty are the social networks. Sometimes social networks can be strong enough that people do not, you know, that poverty is not as degrading. But social networks are hard to sustain when you have nothing to so, live with. So I want to go back to your notion of opportunity. Can you tell me a little bit more mm-hmm. about what a social network is? Well, a social network is, you know, if I need, if I need a job or I've got a, I need a part for my car or should I tile my bathroom in this way, you call a friend or you call somebody who knew somebody who did it once or you call somebody that you know will give you the straight scoop and isn't just trying to sell you something. So these are social networks, and we constantly rely on social networks sure. to help us make decisions. Which is which is Those, really a, a part of point number three for you, I, I would imagine. Like you know, this no no community or no access. That your social network would be. I mean, it's kind of intimately linked with this understanding of community, right? Yeah, they they overlap. But okay. to, to to not having preparation for choices, if your social network never connects you to a better education or never gives you a broader experience, then you're not being prepared for choices that you could have made. Right. That's real poverty, man. That's poverty of spirit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I... Uh, then, yeah, go ahead. Then another one that I find, uh, you know, this urban myth stuff that something, some, somebody says something and everybody says it and once enough people say it, it becomes true. Yes, yep. So... Sounds you've like heard the politics. story of if right. <laughs> you've heard the story of you know if you give a man a fish, you'll have to feed him tomorrow. Yes. If you teach him to fish, you've given him you know a, a lifetime. Yes. Not true. 
Not true at all. Do you know the one I've heard? Because what have you heard? There's, there's, this, there's a third version. That I think uh, the, the line is, uh, teach a man uh, to fish and he'll be dead from mercury poisoning in three years. Uh, there's an environmental issue there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so, so so it's not true. So go ahead. Yeah. No, the thing is, even if you know how to fish, if you can't get a license mm-hmm. to get a place at the river, mm-hmm. in other words, to, to have knowledge but to have no respect, to not be allowed to participate in the benefits of the social economic community. Yes. And to participate means not only to receive benefit but to add. Right. Poverty is having no ability to add and to partake. No ability, yeah, it's good. Um, I just have two more. Another one is irresponsible governance. Right. Where you have continuous exclusion instead of continuous inclusion. Yep. You know, we call this social mobility sometimes when we're talking about going up, but there's Mm -hmm. also mobility going down. And this tremendous gap between uh, the rich and the poor, the bigger the gap, the less chance there ever will be for anybody to aspire to go up. And that's very dangerous. Right, right. And then the last one I'd say is the destruction of the common environment. Hmm. So if you can capture a resource, you put a gate around it and live inside of it. Right. This is this is very interesting because there are now huge uh, apartment buildings in Bombay, in Mumbai, where uh, it's really nice living there, but because so much water is being pulled out of the ground, that sewage is seeping in, and so the whole very expensive, very beautiful uh, apartment structure is slowly sinking into sewage. Right. Yeah. You got to love that kind live, of thing. Yeah. We we live in a common environment. When we destroy it, we all, you know, the gated community only lasts for a short time. So for me, these are critical issues of poverty. Well, what a great... Beyond income, but they're included income. Yeah, for sure. And what a great metaphor, the the lousy foundation and the structure is is crumbling and falling falling to pieces. Yeah, yeah, no, it's excellent. Um, that's good. It's it's uh, it just for me. It reminds me of how hyper connected everything really is. So to actually, Absolutely. yeah, no, to, to find poverty in, in sort of one way, you know, the, the the World Bank. What do they have? Three distinctions: extreme, moderate, and relative poverty. I think, and I think most of those have have to do with you know economic indicators and so on. But but it, there's just it's so much uh, more comprehensive and subtle and nuanced than that. And I think in the in the West, I think most of us, never mind the West, but I think most of us just forget that. That so easily because of where we're living. Um, I want to come back uh, to poverty and how it might the, uh, those um, those disconnects or those gaps might f- might change the way we look at you know you know trying to solve it. And I don't want to reduce our conversation today to some phrase and oh it's all about this and we're going to save the world as a result of that. I think we we both know it's far more complicated. But after so many years of working in development in such a what I would call a, a pre bang on definition of poverty and, and you're, you're, you're not leaving any stones unturned there, that's for sure. Um, what do you think are some of the, the greatest problems? I know you and I have had conversations about a few things along the way, but I'd love to hear uh, your reflections on, you know, is it gender justice? Is it education? Uh, that's, you know, love to hear what you have to say about, you know, what, what are those global solutions? Well, I, I picked out four and I could have easily picked out eight or eighty, um, but I picked out four that would be referred to as wicked problems. Hmm. Interesting. Wicked problems are those problems that defy solution through traditional thought patterns. You actually, you actually use that word in your CV. Uh, when I was yes. preparing for the interview, and just like you actually refer to, I think, wicked social problems or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole set of literature that was basically started, uh, and the term was coined in 1972 um, by a systems analysis, uh, Horst Riddle, hmm. who he said there are some problems that there are. Actually, you can't have solutions for If you try to solve it, you create bigger problems. Right, okay. Yep. But you still have to solve it. And so he called those wicked problems hmm. because 
in, in the end, you're going to have to take a shot. Right. And you won't know. Okay? So what do you have to put into place for your best shot? Right. And it's interesting that the, the critical approach then is building shared understandings with all kinds of people in dialogue. So you, it's highly inclusive. So I picked out four that are truly wicked problems. Love, and, your, love your phrase, by the way, shared understanding. Yeah, no, it's, uh, if you leave somebody out of the room, that person may have that little piece of the puzzle that if you heard it, you know, that would make other things make sense. So my four wicked socially complex problems are, number one, crime and violence. Okay. In schools and in society, and especially in urban areas. Because if nobody's safe, then nobody's safe. Yep. And violence breeds violence. So for me, uh, the problems of youth are not that youth are violent. The problems of youth is that you grow up in a place where violence affects you. Right. Seriously. And people that are really good at crime, we're not talking about just, you know, stealing things out of windows. Crime really controls society because they get money and they have right. community. Right. So I think the issue for the 21st century, one of the big ones, is how are we going to deal with crime and violence? Which means, you know, how will we rebuild community that this will not be acceptable for us and will our... The second one is irresponsible governance. Okay. Crime and violence is about advocacy. Sorry, irresponsible governments is about advocacy and accountability. Do we advocate for the right things in the right way? And are we accountable for our actions? Those of us, And everybody's involved in governance at some level. Sure. Yep. So when, when our, our governors askew responsibility and accountability and hide it behind politically correct <coughs> words, these, this is very deadly to all of us. And remember, I'm the rock-throwing hippie from the 60s who was a kind of an anarchist and didn't believe in authority. Right. For me to be saying this now is, you know, massive. <laughs> right. right. Are you one of those guys, um, I've, I've used this in uh, before, uh, but I love this line, Dennis Hopper, you know the filmmaker? He said right, that uh -huh. He said something to the effect of that if you remember the 60s, you actually didn't experience it. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, some, something. Well, I remember something about the 60s, so I was <laughs> okay, Good. So we could take some of what you say at, at face value. That's good. So, okay, at so crime, value, yeah. cri crime and violence and, and irresponsible yeah, so crime government. Crime and violence, irresponsible government. Yeah. The third is the degradation of our environment. You know, this is just, it's, you know, breakneck speed headed in non-sustainable energy harvesting right. and no constraints on economic growth. You know, no, if you were an MBA and you were looking at how you get rid of byproducts that you don't want and you dump them into the environment, that has a cost. Yeah, of course. You know, so no constraints on economic growth means economic constraints on growth because economic growth is economic. So you need economic constraints on it. We don't seem to be willing to accept that. So degradation of the environment, and yep. the fourth one, you can see how these are wicked problems. Oh, yeah, you know? no, for sure, yeah. And the last one is one word, water. Water, yeah. Is, you know, water is, for certain in the Middle East, it is going to be the issue. Right. Um, but water, it's going to be, a, you know, when you don't have anything to drink, then you can go, what, a day and a half without water? Yeah, I'm not sure what the right. odds are. I just, I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's a few days. I just, I'm always stunned when I look at that, and I don't know what the uh, the numbers are right now, but when you look at the UN standards for what, you know, any one person needs, um, you know, to, to, of water to use on a particular day, so this is how many liters you need to, you know, to cook and to clean and so on and to drink. Right. And then when you look at the stats of what we use you know, with showers and running water and dishwashers and swimming pools and golf courses and the list goes on. I mean, it's just, talk about gap. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. insane. It's it's just, the numbers are crazy. So, yeah, I uh, really should put that to memory, but it's it's astounding how, 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 um, how wide that gap really is. Um, 
So, you know, rather than spend uh, the rest of the interview talking about solutions for these four issues, which would, like you said, you know, you could talk a day on each one without a doubt. There's a there's a course here for sure. Um, how, you know, you said water certainly in the Middle East will be an issue. I think it's going to be an issue mm -hmm. everywhere. But what, can you tell me a bit more about the Middle East? I. I mean, I, I've certainly grown up reading about it, hearing about it. I've spent years in development now. I teach in it. And I still might be f one of those guys in a conversation that says, you know what, I, I can give you 10 minutes on the Middle East, and, and then I'm done. I, I don't know much more about it, you know. It's, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. Uh, quite the contrary. I would love to know more about it, but I just I don't want to presume. It's so complicated, Kurt. Or at least it seems to be. You know, and if, you know, you want to talk about one of those urban legends, you know, it's kind of like I've been in many conversations where people kind of just, you know, they write off Africa. You know, oh, well, Africa's, it's tribalism or, you know, it's, 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 it's poverty and it's extreme and, and it's just, there isn't a solution. So let's, let's just move on to something that we actually can solve. And I think sometimes people look at the Middle East that way and, wow, it's just, there's so many different factions and it's religion again and it's violence. And so you you have a really practical way of explaining it, and I would love for you to do that, if not for the listener's sake, for my sake alone. <laughs> well, the, one of the astonishing things about the Middle East, and it's not limited to the Middle East, is that we have really immature politics. Hmm. Yeah, that's, so I would say that's, that's, that's global, that is. Yeah. 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 But uh, the specific thing I'm talking about, it doesn't mean that you have uh, uneducated or not smart people. Right, right. Okay? You've probably heard the phrase, if you only have a hammer, every problem is a nail. Right. Um, so the Israeli-Palestinian um, issue, or whatever noun we want to put there, dominates everything. So if we go into a community of, of fourth-generation Gaza refugees in a camp in Jordan, and we start talking about the importance of education and being prepared to get a job and you know <clears throat> joining the economy, and the answer is, no, no, we're going back to Gaza. There's only one issue for us. So you see what happens. Everything is short-circuited onto one single issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Middle East is just like everywhere else. There are dozens of multiple issues um, that need to be discussed, thought about, you know, float uh, possible solutions. But if everything has to come back to, no, no, there's only one issue, um, then that immaturizes the political discussion. Yeah, well, it's a form of reductionism, which we seem, I mean, I think we all seem to be pretty good at, right? We want, we want what's easy, you know? I don't want to sound like an old fart, but the Twitter culture certainly seems to be leaning towards, we, I, I want that quick solution. I, I only have a minute to give to this. I don't have, you know, the sound bite and so on. It's, it's, it's kind of problematic, it seems to me. Well, and it's easy, easily manipulated. Yeah. You yeah, know, and when, yeah. In, in many ways, Arab culture is a traditional culture that is becoming modern or postmodern pretty rapidly. And it, how many did it take us 100, 150 years in the West to decide what we would meant by this was our tradition, yeah, sure. and leave it behind yeah. and bring it yeah. So that's not able to happen now. It's, the kitchen has got too many cooks in it and yeah. the stove is too hot. You, um, so you, that's yeah. political. Yeah. Socially, um, this is going to be interesting because I lived in Lebanon where things were uh, at a time when everything was basically run by militias. The state really had no authority. And then another state comes in and invades it and tries to occupy it. And then they are forced out. So for me, social consequences have to do with the ability of the state to contain violence. It's called the policeman on the corner. Right. You know, if sure. somebody throws a rock through your window, you've got somebody you can go talk to about. Sure. Yep. Um, one of the things that we're seeing in, in a very stunning way is the shredding of the social fabric, the apparent shredding of the social fabric in Syria, where people like Sunnis and Christians who've lived together since before 1900 in some places. 
uh, in their neighborhoods, uh, thugs come in, uh, attack Christian homes and Sunni neighbors whose grandfathers were friends. You suddenly discover that nobody is safe, and uh, if you're a, if you're on the if you're in the same sect that the thugs are in, they won't turn on you right. until they choose to. So the people who are being turned against, your, your neighbors can't help you because nobody's got control of the violence. So we're rapidly unraveling the social fabric and rapidly depleting any social capital. It's not impossible to restore it, but the longer it goes, the more impossible it becomes. And it's not because, you know, uh, people are inherently violent or inherently bad or anything to do with their religious beliefs. It's really about the ability of the state to guarantee that its citizens are protected from violence. What, um, how, much, how much do you think, um, uh, you know, unresolved anger or... Uh, you know, reconciliation, forgiveness, you know, you look at places like Bosnia and Rwanda and Cambodia and so on, and I mean, you know, you, you, I think you just mentioned that you, you think that it is possible to, to, to deal with these, some of these issues in the Middle East and so on, but I think that's one of the things often I certainly hear people saying, well, you know, there's these, these, these issues go back thousands of years, so therefore, right? So let's take that cynical approach. I'm much more of a hopeful cynic uh, in the sense that, yeah, it's troubling, it's, it's deeply problematic, but we can change, you know, and to, to circle back to your, uh, you know, your schooling years ago as an epidemiologist, I mean, you clearly believe that's true and you're working from the inside out. So yeah, where does, where does anger, um, forgiveness, things that apply to us as well, where, where does that play into, into all of this? Well, I'll, I'll make one short statement about something and one longer statement. The this stuff doesn't go back thousands of years. Oh, okay, good. If you if you just if you and I'm just going to pick one tiny little thing that's actually verifiable in the West. If you go back to Egyptian movies in the mid '50s, and anybody can pull this stuff up now, okay? And you look at the movies as a reflection of the culture. Mm-hmm. The clothes, the cars, the stories, um, the the whole direction of Arab culture was moving in a way that uh, some people would, people would say, well, it was far too Western, and other people would say, oh, those guys look just like Doris Day and Rock Hudson, <laughs> speak English. <laughs> so it hasn't been the way that we think it is forever. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And the West had a great hand at the end of World War II in starting processes in, you know, starting processes that ensured that things could not be, it's not going to be a user-friendly environment. Um, so I think there's two kinds of anger that I have to think about when I'm dealing with communities and people. And, of course, we have... Uh, spent quite a bit of time with Iraqis and Iraqi families and people who have suffered horribly and lost close, you know, fathers and mothers and sisters and children and brothers. There's a political anger. And this is, this is the kind of anger that, uh, that the ruling regimes whip up to ensure that people can't think about anything else other than that and then they can be m- manipulated and goaded. Right. It happens in the West. You know, we've we've oh, started sure. wars uh, over um, whipping up people's. Well, the most recent one was the weapons of mass destruction stuff in Iraq. You know, you whip people up to a political anger, and then off we go. Yep, that's different. There's forgiveness is going to be very hard for that because that's a political thing. But I, the other one I call social anger, and this is so. Why can't things be different? Why did this happen to me? Why can't I change it? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why? Um, and forgiveness has a real important role here, and I'll just tell one story that yeah, illustrates please. it. Um, one of the young girls that we counseled when she was, oh my goodness, maybe eight years old, was a refugee from Iraq. 
and she had been kidnapped when she was three, tied up, uh, apparently beaten. Um, her parents were told that if they didn't come up with five thousand dollars within three days, they would she would be killed. So, and those things, you know, kids were killed. So the parents quickly put together five thousand dollars, ransomed the child back. She was dumped out of a car. Her teeth were knocked out. She hadn't been given food and water, hmm. um, and she never spoke. After that, right. she would whisper. She would whisper to her mother. Well, they immediately left Iraq, came to Jordan. They were pinged around in the refugee system. When, by the time we met the little girl, it was five years later, and she still hadn't talked. Wow. So, except to whisper to her mother about, you know, I'm hungry, I'm sleepy, I'm tired. So, you know, what's going on inside of her parents. And what's maybe even worse, her father was a psychologist. And there was, no, I mean, they took her everywhere for help. Um, finally, we we had a, a, a summer camp for a refugee uh, girl, and one of our staff, we didn't have enough women to staff the camp who were what you might call trained in psychology, so we took all of our women staff, so we, even the, the, the front desk receptionist, who was, a, you know, she had a, a diploma in, from the secretarial school. But she noticed this little girl, and no one was talking to her, so she whipped out her nail polish and started polishing her nails. And the little girl came over, and uh, Talim said, you know, would you like nails like these? Well, what eight-year-old girl wouldn't? Hmm. So by taking her hand, because nobody, she wouldn't let anyone touch her, by taking her hand, touching her, doing something that was totally other, and talking, then this little girl started pouring out that story. Well, we were able to draw the mother and the father and, you know, uh, the, the people who are qualified to help in these situations into the circle. Then her mother had her crisis. How can I live knowing what these guys did to my daughter? Right. She said, I, I can't even, I can't even forgive. They're probably dead. They were militia guys. Yeah. So this hate was just eating her up inside. And we had discussions, uh, you know, parent discussions alongside the camp for the children. <clears throat> and a lot of discussion about forgiveness and be, being free. You know, you don't forgive someone for the sake of them. You forgive someone sometimes because you just need to be free. Right. So she refused. And But the next morning she came to breakfast with tears in her eyes. And she said, I can never forgive. But I tried it for five minutes, and it made such a difference for those five minutes that I'm going to try it for ten today. Wow. <laughs> so we can't... Forgiveness is not something that you teach people. Forgiveness is something that when they get to a dead end, it's an alternative that you make. You know, uh, you have to make a place for that to make sense. And forgiveness is much... I mean, who can live with hate? You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think what's what's really, uh, I mean, so much of that is uh, speaks to me, and I hope others on on various levels. But it, it connects back to you know what you talked about this idea of a shared understanding. You used a phrase totally other, and and mm -hmm. you know not to reduce it to one act again, but the the holding of her hand, and and really, I mean, at, at some level, isn't that the beginning of building some kind of community? Absolutely. Which is connected to your definition of poverty. So, um, which is connected to anger and forgiveness and all these things, it, it seems to me. Um, believe it or not, we're, clo we're closing in on, on uh, the, the end, I think, of, of this interview. And maybe we can do a part two down the road. I, I hope you'd be okay. open to that. But I would love to hear what, what um, well, any of your sort of last thoughts or comments, but, um, and take a few minutes to answer this. I'm not trying to restrict you here, but what do you think, um, what do you think Middle Eastern culture, Jordanian culture, Islam, big questions, have to teach us, not only as uh, people in the development field, but, you know, uh, teach us as academics and uh, politicians and human beings, you know, 
um, what, what, what can we learn? I think too often development from my perspective has been about, you know, you, f you fly into a remote um, location in Cambodia, for instance, and you're, I'm the, I'm the six foot two white guy who's bald and wears a straw fedora. So, gee, I don't, I don't stand out too much, but what's With your pit helmet and your Hawaiian. <laughs> yeah. And my big Nikon camera. Yeah. Yeah. He's, why does he keep eating granola bars? He's not eating any yeah. of the local food, you know? <laughs> um, if they even know, you know, Cambo local Cambodians, what granola bars are. But but the, the I guess you're too often, you, it's, you, I'm seen as the guy who has all the answers and the solution. And very often when I'm teaching or doing any kind of capacity in that environment, one of my first things is, hey, you know what? You guys already know all this stuff I'm going to teach you. It's just I've got different language for it than you do. And and let's let's kind of my approach is let's talk about this together and see what we can unpack and reveal together. So I try to be cross-culturally aware and sensitive and so on. And, I, and, 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 and this whole white Western arrogance, I just... I want to get away from it. So yeah, I wonder wonder what you can say about that from uh, from your thirty. It still blows me away that you've spent thirty two years over there and being white. Uh, I would think you have a, um, a pretty different um, approach. And if I get thirty more, I'll spend them there. Yeah, and when I say sorry, what being white, I said oh, being yeah. white. You have a different approach. I mean, being white and living in the context for thirty two years. You sure, must, sure. You must well, have I got it. A, yeah, good. Well, I think. Um, one probably the biggest thing because I spent a couple of days thinking about this. Yes, probably the biggest thing is if you put we're actually bringing some of these things that we've learned in the Middle East in a reverse knowledge transfer back to North America. Hmm. And one of the things that stands out to me that makes it much harder to deal with at-risk children in North America is that in Jordan, in Syria. In Lebanon, in Egypt, in right. Palestine, in Iraq, people want their children to belong, and their children want to belong. So this sense of there's a, there's a, there's something that I I want to belong to. I'm not an individual. Development for um, at this level of at risk youth is really uh, an issue of why do I have to be alone. Why do I have to be atomized? Right. I want to belong. So you, that opens up lots of possibilities that in downtown Washington, D.C., nobody's had any community for three generations. And so what are you talking about, community, you know? So the, uh, there's a, a lot to be observed about the strengths of Middle Eastern culture and how they maintain, sustain that sense of community. Hmm. In the face of you know all kinds of onslaughts, right? Sure, yeah. Um, a second one <clears throat> is you know there's a development industry, so an industry requires that there always is a problem, and there's always resources that we're going to get to fill at that problem, and really the constituency that we're playing towards is the donor. This is not going to work. Big, big plans, lots of money, uh, industry-driven goals that are not accountable to the, to, the, to the people that we should be accountable to are not going to bring about the outcomes we want. Right. We face that in the Middle East, but so far, if you talk about it, it can still find a place at the table. People are respectful enough of other viewpoints. Because, I mean, the Middle East is probably the most pluralistic place on Earth. Hmm. You know, for thousands of years, everybody goes to the Middle East. Right. You know, and everybody tries to stamp everybody else out. And then, you know, you can't. So you have to develop, especially that balance between the monotheistic faiths, the, the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, all of whom would have been speaking whatever language was in vogue at that time. You know, for a thousand or years or more, it's been Arabic. We know that we've got to talk about stuff, and we've got to keep it at the level of talk until we can figure out how to accomplish something together. That seems to be almost lost in the West. Right. And then a third thing is that when creativity gets supported, new roles appear. You know, I'm a, I'm a 17-year-old, and suddenly I can do something different. Um, this is hard in the West because we have very strong welfare systems. We have very strong, uh, where everybody's afraid of being uh, sued or liabilities, or we've got 
you know, we've got a helicopter to protect people. Mm-hmm. So we don't get a lot of creativity, I think. Um, and we don't want to lose this spring, you know, of, of new roles, new ideas, new ways of doing things. If that spring feeds hopeful actions, if you lose that spring, then uh, you feed unhopeful actions. Right, right. So these are to look at Arab society as a, or Middle Eastern society, to include Iranians and Turks, there's still springs of hope and remarkable creativity possible um, that we need to learn uh, how to foster that right. and not how to harness it. You know, the difference, you know, to foster it means you can, the horse can run free. Right, right. To harness it means you've got to get your rope on him. Right, not of course. about yeah. harnessing. So these are some of my first comments. Right. We could go for a whole day yeah. on this one question. Yeah, no, of course we could. I, I mean, I think for me, I mean, there's so many great things that have come out of uh, this conversation, but your idea about shared understanding and the totally other, how connected all of these things are, you're, you know, you, just, just your definition of poverty alone, we probably should have had the whole conversation about that <laughs> and just to see what, you know, uh, came out of that. But really, you could build uh, a book, an essay, uh, a course around any one of these. I think it's... Uh, I think it's incredibly fascinating and deeply frustrating <laughs> all at the same time. Yes. Right. For people who... Two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, you want to change and you want to believe Gladwell, you know, this idea of epidemics starting with little things. And I truly do believe that little things make a big difference. And, and anyone who knows me gets sick of hearing about it. But we've got to believe that fundamentally at some point that, the, you know, the hand holding of that young, young girl in your story... That, that, you know, started some kind of, uh, you know, an epidemic in our own life. And, and who knows where, where and how that's going to ultimately play out. Um, thanks a lot, Kurt. I really appreciate it. And I will um, we'll be in touch. And uh, just before I end and, and we hit the stop button on the, on the, on the recorder, uh, Questcope, uh, um, can you give us the website again? Yes, it's uh, questscope.org. Q-U-E-S-T-S-C-O-P-E, one word. Uh-huh. Great. Work. Well, thanks for joining us today, and we will hopefully do a part two in the near future. Inshallah. As God will. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt.